How good is Australia? This fucking language. Let there be a thousand blossoms blooms for a concern. But I ain't spending any time on it. Don't stop wearing the speedos. You're listening to Decode, the Tudor Advocates' new podcast series for those Australians who have tuned out or never tuned in to the dark arts of federal politics. It's called being, you wouldn't believe it, a goddamn bloody adult. Hello and welcome to Decode, the Batuta Advocate's new podcast series aimed at breaking down the complicated and convoluted world of politics. Thank you for joining us as we try and wade through and decode this upcoming federal election. So do make sure you subscribe or follow wherever it is you get your podcasts, because every single week we'll be bringing you a couple of new episodes, including a breakdown of the week's politics, some interviews with Clancy and Errol humanising politicians, and plenty more bits of history, all that sort of stuff. But to really wrap our heads around politics, we'll be trying to decode all the things that make up our political system and make it work. Yeah, thanks for tuning in. As we've promised, we're trying to make politics a bit more accessible for people who may have tuned out or have never tuned in. Just a couple of young regional journalists trying to help our audience figure out what the fuck is going on. Indeed, Effie, and in this episode, we're going to have a run at explaining one of the biggest players in this upcoming election, the Liberal Party of Australia. We were going to go with the Labor Party, we mentioned that previously, but we flipped and we thought we should probably go with the people in charge right now to kick things off. We'll have a guest on it in a bit to help us run through things, but for some background first up. Yeah, the Liberal Party have been in government since 2013 and they're hoping to do it all again in a few months' time. 2013 was Tony Abbott, then we had Malcolm Turnbull and now we've got Scott Morrison. A lot of leadership spills uh, got us to where we are now. But the Liberal Party, they form government with the support of the Nationals. The two of them, they become the coalition government and basically they work together as a team to vote on things and run the country. And it's worth saying that they have been in government for a hell of a lot more than they haven't been in government or they've been in opposition. Uh, The Libs are mostly based in the city in more urban, regional or outer metro areas and they are on the right side of politics. So they're the team your mate in the mines votes for or maybe your dad who owns a small business votes for. Or your Christian grandmother votes for. Obviously, it's pretty hard to split the nation up into two teams, but the Libs seem to have a really strong middle-class base. Now, a little bit of history. They were formed as a party in 1945. The Liberals' immediate predecessor was actually the United Australia Party, which was way, way, way before Clive Palmer was spreading anti-vax messages and blowing up your phone with unsolicited texts. They were the United Australia Party, but more broadly, the Liberal Party's ideological ancestry stretched back to the anti-Labor, anti-socialist groups. Yeah, they were very much fighting against those anti-Labor groups back then. And there were a bunch of changes to the names as well over the time between 1901 to 1945. And without going into too much of a 9C history lesson today, there were basically a lot of people on the anti-Labor side of politics who flip-flopped around with different party names until eventually they settled on one, which was the Liberal Party of Australia in 1945. And from then on, they won a lot of elections. Robert Menzies was the longest-serving Prime Minister of the Liberal Party from 1949 to 1966. John Howard had a big stint from 1996 to 2007. 
And Malcolm Fraser had seven years, and there were a couple of other short stints, including Harold Holt, who famously went for a swim and never came back. And now there is a swimming pool named after him, I believe. Yes, there <laughs> is. It's a bit of a weird one. Really does blow people's minds who uh, aren't Australian when you tell them that our Prime Minister just went for a swim and he never <laughs> came back. So poor old Harold. Uh, lots of theories about what happened to him, but we don't have time to delve into those. Traditionally, they are pretty conservative financially and socially. Socially being the old school idea of the traditional Christian values, the family values that you often hear about, opposing same-sex marriage, being a bit iffy on things like abortion and reproductive rights and being worried that they won't be able to use the Bible to discriminate against gay teachers. And financially, they're conservative in the sense that they try and minimise government spending. They're not big fans of Centrelink or Dole Bludgers, as some of them might say. They try and minimise government involvement in regulating or controlling industries and financial markets. Deregulation, I think they call it. And they also really like giving out tax cuts, which are quite popular. Now, we aren't experts on this stuff, so we've actually asked someone who knows the system a lot better than us to come in and explain it all. He was the youngest person ever to be elected to an Australian parliament. That was at the age of 20. Ripe old age. I shudder to think what I was doing at the age of 20, looking back at the share houses I was living in. Disgraceful. But he then became the youngest minister in the history of the Commonwealth becoming appointed to the ministry at the age of 25, cabinet minister, high position there, described as the baby of the house by his colleagues. It's great to have Wyatt Roy in the Desert Rock FM studios with us today. Thanks for coming in, Wyatt. G'day, guys. Thanks for having me on. Now, I think it helps to just quickly run through your background. So you're raised on a strawberry farm north of Brisbane, went to school on the sunny coast before backpacking around Europe, got into uni, dropped out, and then got elected to parliament. Could you tell us more about that? No, that's about it. I think my CV back then fit on a post-it note. But um, I, uh, yeah, it was an amazing experience. I mean, I was elected to the parliament uh, at the age of 20, which was obviously pretty controversial at the time. But I think, you know, it's a good thing if the parliament is representative of the Australian people and mm. a few young people, a few people from different backgrounds is a, a really good thing. And it also means that the parliament had a, a long-term perspective. You know, I think, uh, you know, the decisions that are made in the parliament affect the country for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Unfortunately, in politics, you often are talking about what's happening in the next week's news cycle or what's happening in the next three-year election campaign. So, you know, bringing a bit of that long-term perspective into the parliament was an incredible experience. I loved it. You know, I got to serve as a minister, the Minister for Innovation, made big changes uh, to the country, which I'm really proud about there. And then I've been enjoying the liberation of the private sector post-politics in 2016. And uh, that age thing, that's why we've got you on. It's good to have someone of our generation help us kind of explain these things and break it down. What kind of spurred you to get into politics at the age of 18, 19? Was it just someone saying, you've got to do this, giving you the tap on the shoulder? I mean, quite literally, that one day I did have the call from somebody who said you should have a crack and I said you know you're crazy I'm 19 and what are you thinking about but I think what got me involved in the Liberal Party and what got me involved in politics earlier on so you know I don't come from a political family first person in my family to finish high school including two older brothers who I love dearly but no one had ever gone past grade nine in my family and traditionally they voted for the Labor Party and I'm in the Liberal Party but how so it worked kind of the black sheep thing. yeah <laughs> definitely <laughs> the, yeah. The trail. I would definitely say the black sheep yeah. but but I um what actually happened was I was helping out a mate of mine called Pat who was in a wheelchair and 
but I was good at economics. Uh, it was the one thing I was actually good at. My economics lecturer said, you understand economics, but you also understand social justice and helping people. You should get involved in politics because you can make a difference. And I know that's a cliche, but it's true. It absolutely is true. And I, you know, understood the values and philosophies of the Liberal Party and signed up. And uh, I very quickly realised, hey, this is something I can do. And I think if you're confident without being arrogant and if you're prepared to sort of make your voice heard people really rally behind it and the good thing about our side of politics at least in Queensland um, it's a very democratic process so you, everybody who's a local and is a member of the party can vote in a pre-selection so someone said hey you should run for parliament I got in my Commodore ran around and saw everybody had a chat gave a good speech there was five candidates in the pre-selection uh, I overwhelmingly won the pre-selection beat you know won an election against the Labor Party member and then another election and lost my third. So two out of three is not too bad. Please explain. Sorry for the no context Pauline Hanson there, but we'll be jumping in quickly to decode certain things that get mentioned. Yeah, Wyatt mentioned pre-selection there. Basically, pre-selection is the process by which a candidate is selected to run for the party in the election. Before election day, people in the party decide who they want to be their candidate for the electorate. Bit like an Australian Idol doing those auditions all over Australia to pick contestants for the show. You live in Caboolture, you have your audition, the Liberal Party, who are the judges, they like you, and they give you the nod to go and run for the seat of Longman or whatever electorate you're in. And we'll touch on that a bit more in future episodes. But for now, back to Wyatt. During your time in Parliament, you were described as a wet Liberal. That sounds fun. What's that? Well, I mean, I think these these terms are sometimes sort of misunderstood because for me, sometimes people try and apply in the Liberal Party. There's probably two broad themes of, of people in the Liberal Party. There are Liberals and there are Conservatives. Yeah. And you can apply those things to both social issues and economic issues. Uh, so I think the term wet is a little bit confusing because do you apply it to the economic sense or to the social sense? So on it, the way that I would describe myself is I'm essentially just a libertarian. You know, I don't like government in our lives. And I think about that in the economic sense. I like small government. I like, you know, if people have a go, we should reward them for working hard. I like the freedom of the individual. Uh, and in a social sense, I just feel the same way. You know, I, yeah. I don't think the government should really get involved in my, my life. So I think the more accurate sense in the Liberal Party would probably be a small L liberal, you know, so you have small L liberals versus big liberals who would be the more conservative side of the party. So I would, you know, I'd sort of put myself in, in that camp. But on the economic sense, I mean, I'd, I'd probably be quite conservative on an economic yeah. sense. But, you know, on social issues, I mean, I was one of the first people to, you know, call for same sex marriage and, you know, uh, all of these sorts of issues. But that was from a, a philosophical sense of I just really don't want the government in my life. So socially progressive fiscally and financially concerned. Exactly right. That's what we're working with. Yeah, cool. yeah, exactly. Okay. I think, uh, you know, you want to manage the finance as well. You want to make sure people have an opportunity and people should be free to live how they want in their life and that's both in their work life, their business, but also in their personal life. Mm. And that's how you'd describe yourself fitting within the Liberal Party. How would you describe the Liberal Party as a whole? We'll touch on the factions in a little bit and how they break down and where they fit in. But as the Liberal Party as a whole, how would you kind of describe it as a, as a thing? Uh, well, I think, you know, John Howard often had this line where he said the Liberal Party is a broad church. And, mm. I, and I, I tend to really agree with him. I think the Liberal Party is anchored in the middle of Australia. You know, the people that the Liberal Party seeks to represent are people who are uh, Robert Menzies, who founded the Liberal Party, he called them the forgotten people. John Howard called them, you know, the Howard Battlers, and Scott Morrison would call them the uh, the uh, the quiet, quiet Australians. Quiet yeah. Australians, exactly right. But that is, that is really who the Liberal Party is about. I mean, it's about people who are aspirational. They work hard. They want to have a crack, and they want to um 
be rewarded for that hard work. Uh, and so that I think is where our core constituency kind of exists, or who, you know, where the party comes from. You know, small business owners, tradies, people working in a profession, farmers. Those people are really where the Liberal Party was born from. And in terms of you know that broad church, again, I think it's people who are uh, we would call liberal from a philosophy sense. So they don't want mm. government in their life. They they think freedom. You know, freedom is the best way of describing the philosophy of the Liberal Party. They love love freedom. And then, of course, the conservative side of the party, which, you know, I would call the conservative party people who are uh, pragmatic and they want to bring common sense to policymaking. They, I think, have a, you know, an acute sense of sort of almost intergenerational equity. So the sense that, you know, if we preserve something and we make it good, then we want to hand that over to the next generation. So we don't want them to have, you know, too much debt or we want them to be able to have more opportunity to get a job. And traditionally, they believe in institutions, you know, they, they believe in things like the parliament and democracy and the rule of law. And so I think those two sort of broad themes come together, which, you know, as John Howard says, is a broad mm. church or a big tent. But um, I think that delivers better government for Australia. Yeah. Okay. And are there any other kind of key ideologies there that drive at things? You know, we often hear about, yeah, that small government that you mentioned, personal responsibility, free market, those kinds of things. Are there any other things internally that you kind of... That, are, that you guys are led by or pillars that kind of hold you up? Uh, you know, I really do think it is that that strong philosophical sense of how do we create wealth rather than how do we redistribute wealth as a country? Mm-hmm. And that was really where the Liberal Party was sort of founded. I mean, you had this, you know, back in the, in the 40s, you had a uh, situation where the non-Labor side of politics, and it, and it sounds a little bit weird, but the Liberal Party was really founded not so much directly out of this is what we believe, but it was also in response to there was, you know, a Labor Party which was mm. um, extremely left. I mean, it was a communist party, it was a socialist party, and that yeah. was a real threat at the Nationalising banks, those sorts of things. Exactly. I mean, literally the communists ran the Labor Party and the Labor Party split, you know, mm. you know around the communists. So it, it was a real coalescing of, of a group of people who said, hey, you know, we don't want Australia to become a communist socialist sort of state, which, you know, sounds ridiculous now, yeah, but in the yeah, 40s, yeah. you know, that was... That things were a bit different. Yeah, things were a bit different. And, uh, you know, at the core of that philosophy, it is how do we create more wealth and prosperity as a country? Grow mm-hmm. the pie, everyone gets more opportunity. Like I said in the beginning, if you want to, you know, work hard, let's reward that. Versus how do we redistribute wealth? So how do we attack... That sort of core base of people that I was talking about, the small business owners, the tradies, the, you know, the shopkeepers, the, you know, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker type people, rather than sort of attacking them and taking wealth from them and redistributing it to what was then um, really organized labor. So, you know, a, a union force now, quite different to what we would think of it now, but a really kind of again, a union force kind of run by the communists of mm. how do we take the money and away from a much from larger base as well. A much larger yeah, yeah. base. You know, like today, I think seven percent of the private sector are union members. I mean, then it would have been mm. massive. So ha- rather than taking money from hardworking people and, you know, redistributing, creating genuinely a communist or socialist state, how do we grow the Australian economy? How do we create more jobs and more opportunity? And that's that that really has stood the test of time in the mm. sense that, um, you know, we want to create more wealth for all of Australians. And, uh, you know, Scott Morrison, when he became prime minister, used this line, which people kind of ridiculed him for, but I, I think it's actually quite true. This idea, if you have a go, you get a go. Mm. That is Liberal Party philosophy, you know. If you, if you, yeah, 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 you know, yeah. if you're out there working, we'll, we'll back you in and we'll, we'll support your aspirations. So, you yeah. know, in a single word, I would say um, freedom and and aspiration be the two two big themes of the Liberal yeah, Party. Okay. And just you mentioned there, back taking it all the way back there to the beginning of their anti kind of Labor Party mm. and the formation of that. You know, a long time before Clive Palmer was 
spreading uh, yellow posters everywhere, putting up yellow billboards, spreading anti-vax messages. There was an original United Australia Party, and that's what the Liberal Party came out of, a formation of them with an anti-Labor party and the general anti-Labor consensus back then. Yeah, that's right. So Bob Menzies, who's Australia's longest-serving Prime Minister, is the founder of the Liberal Party. He gave a very famous speech, and I know the date of the speech because it's my birthday. It's the 22nd of May, 1942, called The Forgotten People, mm. uh, which was a series of sort of radio interviews that he did. And he, he literally carved out what we have just been talking about, which is if you think about, you know, I sort of don't like this term middle Australia, but you can really kind of call it that. If you think of middle Australia, the as I said, the small business owners, the tradies, the professional class, the farmers, you know, I think this is true now and certainly was true then. They were forgotten in the sense that if you are from the big end of town and wealthy, you've kind of got the money and the resources to look after yourself. If you're from the organised labour type sort of movement, then you've got all the kind of powers of the union movement to protect you. But the forgotten people, as, as Bob spoke about them, were you know everyday Australians who mm. the political class had forgotten, and he spoke to them. You know, he really yeah. made a pitch that to them. That huge middle class of Australia. Exactly. Really. You know, yeah. they are they are the. Um, they generally are the the big chunk of the Australian populace, but because their voices are not loud, and, and for good mm. reasons. I mean, mm. these are people who are worried about, you know, the mortgage. They're worried about getting the kids to school. They're worried about the footy on the weekend. Yeah, they're just plugging away. They're plugging away. Living and, life. And unfortunately, in politics, they don't necessarily get the, the biggest mm. voice. And so Bob, you know, really spoke to them. And that has been the, the foundation of, of the party ever since. And he brought together those you know, forces, the non-Labor forces, and, it, and it's become, you know, the most su- successful political party in Australian history. And I think it's because it, it talks to everyday Australians and still does. Uh, so how much has the party changed since its formation? Well, I mean, I mean you know, the world has changed. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, yes. but, I, but I would say, you know, how much has the party changed? I would say at a philosophical level, at the things that the party stands for, you know, overwhelmingly, you, you know, it hasn't really changed that much in the sense mm. that we're fighting for the same sorts of people. We're believing in those sorts of things. But the world has definitely changed. And I think the way in which the party responds to that and the way in which party, political parties respond to that is always kind of a challenge. So, you know, the things that I would notice is in the you know, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s and so on, most people that were going into the parliament for the Liberal Party were not from politics. You know, now there's a much more strong political class mm. of people who are from politics and going in, which John Howard used to talk about the uh, the shrinking of the gene pool in the parliament. And I'm, you know, that's a bigger problem on the Labor side of politics, but it's something I'm definitely um, conscious of. And I think I see two big threats to the Liberal Party and the Labor Party in the modern era. So on the Labor side, you've got to worry about you know, the Labor Party today, in my opinion, is not the sort of party of the working class that we saw, you know, when the Liberal Party was formed. It's become sort of an inner city lefty type sort of professional party on our side. So obviously how we respond is, is slightly defined by that. But I think on the uh, on our side of politics, the danger is slipping into sort of a populist type sort of movement. And you see that on the real right wing sort of outside the Liberal Party, but sort of tries to get into the Liberal Party where, you know, there's a difference between being a conservative or a liberal and being a populist. And, mm. you know, there are elements of that populism. So, for example, you know, it's very popular to say things like, well, uh, we'll, we'll build a, a coal-fired power station that's run by the government. I mean, there's no world in which, you know, the Liberal mm. Party was founded on renationalising an yeah, industry. Yeah, yeah. So I, I see those kinds of elements where that's nice because that gets you in the media, but it's not grounded in that philosophical sense. So overwhelmingly, you know, I think the party has a very strong base in, in, because of that 
commitment to these mm. ideas, but you, you know, you're always conscious of that threat yeah, from the outside. You've got people following the headlines, following the likes, the clicks, all yeah. that. Sort Can of I stuff. ask a dumb question? What is a populist? So, you know, a populist would be somebody who would, who, you know, I, I mean, I can give you examples. I would say, you know, Donald Trump. I would say Pauline Hanson. I'd say Clive Palmer. Uh, okay, so I would they, say, yeah. they can really, like, muster up a lot of mm. anger and reaction. Yeah, yeah. yeah. E- Exactly. And I think yeah. and reaction is the right word. Yeah. You know, you know when, when Robert Menzies formed the Liberal Party, you know, he has this quote, which I'm, I'm going to stuff up a little bit, but it's close enough, where he says, we specifically chose the word liberal because it was in every way progressive, we were willing to experiment, and it was in no way reactionary. Mm-hmm. And populism is all about reactionary type politics. So how do I, you know, make an outrageous sort of claim, you know, may or may not be true to try and create hype and, and ventilation to get people to vote for me on those sorts of things. Yeah. And and it's quite fascinating. I mean, you know, when Bob Menzies founded the Liberal Party, he clearly said that's not what we want to do. But then you have this threat from sort of populist people who are doing that reactionary type sort of thing. And I would also define a, a populist as somebody who just doesn't believe in anything. You know, yeah. Clive mm-hmm. Palmer... You know, he's an entertaining character. I think what he believes in today depends on what side of the bed he wakes up in the morning uh, <laughs> yeah. and what's going to get him the most clicks online. Yeah. Yeah. That, what will that's get the, the most attention, strength. what will stir people up the most. Yeah. What's kind of and, – and it feels a little bit like it's the easiest route for people. Yeah. You know, it's just to go, I'm going to stir this up, I'm going to make this a big issue and that's what I'm going to do because it's the easiest way to do it and that's what's going to get me the most attention or votes or whatever, yeah. that sort of thing. Exactly. And I think, you know, the Liberal Party is at its best when it sticks to those values, that philosophy and – that, that's the vision that we create for the Australian people. Yeah. No dumb questions, Effie. No dumb questions. <laughs> now, former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull famously said there were no factions in the Liberal Party. That was a couple of years ago, and we saw how that, that ended up for him. Scott Morrison, the hand on the shoulder there in that press conference before he got rolled. Uh, how did you first learn about the factions, rolling in there as a 20-year-old? Well, I mean, you know, Malcolm actually, you know, uh, yes, there are factions in the Liberal Party, but he does make a, a, a really interesting point. So in, in the Labor Party, there are very defined factions. You know, it is defined by which union you belong to, and you're in the Labor left, Labor centre, Labor right, and they genuinely, you know, I, I can say as a Liberal Party member, I can promise you, you know, people in Labor right hate Labor left more than they hate me. In the Liberal Party, we don't have that sort of system. It's always been really around big, strong personalities. Mm. And that's partly a function of what we believe in, right? Like we believe in the individual and freedom. So those factions that exist are way less defined in the in the coalition, but there are big personalities that people coalesce around. And that's more how you would think about factions in the Liberal Party. Why do you think there's such a difference between the two? I think the Labor Party is just naturally a more organised movement, you know. So, okay. so if you think about the way that you would traditionally come into the Labor Party, you would be part of a union, which is organised labour. When you join a union, you're automatically a part of a faction. And those unions have formalised roles within the Labor Party structures. The Liberal Party doesn't have any of that. And, and again, like in the earlier days, as I said, people who joined the Liberal Party were busy people who didn't have time for politics but wanted to make a difference. So they'd come in and there'd be a natural kind of formation around around people. Please explain. So on factions, factions are just the different sections of the parties that people find them in. Groups of people that move and shake to make certain things happen, make people get certain roles. Think of your tribal alliances in Survivor or different cliques in your office or the groups on the job site. People kind of grouping together within that party or workplace. And don't worry, we'll be asking the other sides of politics about this stuff too because they will definitely have something else to say. And the truth is, you know, those factions don't follow the lines that, you know, we were talking about where 
you know, the conservative and liberal philosophy. There's a little bit of that. Mm. But, you know, I can tell you in the factions that I'm sort of aware of within the Liberal Party, there are people who have, you know, certainly people that I would be close with who have fundamentally different views to me. You know, they'd be mm. way more socially conservative than, than I am, but on economics we'd be completely aligned. Yeah. And so it's much more natural in the Liberal Party to be part of mm. a, um, you know, a grouping of people, like-minded friends, rather than than a organised faction. You know, in the, in the Labor Party, those factions have actual policy positions that they take to their conferences and those sorts of things. That just doesn't happen in the mm. Liberal Party. And, of course, where I'm from in, in Queensland, the Liberal Party and the National Party are one party, and so that throws a whole other kind of dynamic on top of it. So, you know, in, at least in the Queensland sense, not that these this sort of exists, but um, it, you'd be easier to identify yourself as a Liberal or a National rather than, you know, a faction within the Liberal Party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's something I want to touch on in a sec. But you're talking about the grouping of like-minded people. Where we're at now, how would you break the groupings up and who would you say they're kind of spearheaded by? Um, well, I think you have the the small L liberals. So, And when I say the small L liberals, I think particularly on the economic sense of things, you know, small government type sort of people. So they hate big spending, they hate high taxes, they hate um, populist type sort of economic policies. And then within that group... Again, like I think it's really important you try and separate out the yeah. social and the economic, but overwhelmingly within that group, I think most people would be pretty socially progressive. You know, they're just libertarian yep. type sort of people as well. You then have, which would probably be the loneliest group in the Liberal yep. Party today. Which That's would be, like Birmingham, those kind of exactly, guys, Simon yeah, yeah, Birmingham. Simon Birmingham, back in the day, Christopher Pine, yep. Maurice Payne, you know, that. that Turnbull sort of, would have been Absolutely, as well. yeah. Yep. Turnbull is the, you know, classic economically conservative, social liberal, small L liberal person. Peter Costello, you know, back in the day, I would put into that grouping. Yep. And then you have the loneliest group, which would be people who are socially conservative but economically, you know, conservative as well. You know, mm-hmm. they, there's not a lot of them left in the in the parliament, but there are some people like Scott Ryan, who's the president of the Senate. Yeah. And then you have the, you know, truly conservative side of the party, who on uh, social issues would be very conservative, and frankly, on economic issues would be way less conservative. So you know, they sort of would say they're a conservative, but on the economic stuff, would be to the left of the small mm. L liberals. Who would those issues. guys kind of be? Um, well, I mean, Tony Abbott's obviously yeah. the, the most obvious kind of um, example. People like Erica Betts, people, you, you know, th- that sort of grouping of, of individuals. I would I would throw into that um, yeah. that group, and and where Scott Morrison sits. I mean, he sits to the left of, of them in the middle. So you know, Scott is. Mm. is sort of like that lonelier group that I was talking about in the sense that he's obviously socially more conservative, but I think often is a little bit misunderstood on that front. And economically, I mean, he's certainly more uh, traditionalist on economic issues than someone like Tony. So, that you know, it's interesting to see how that kind of plays out. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Now, you're talking there about the National Party and um, how you guys have to interact with them. Labor, obviously, they run their own show. They come up with policy positions. They might fight internally, and obviously you guys would fight internally too. But you have to work with the National Party on all manner of things. How did that initially come about? Well, I mean, that all comes out of, as we were saying before, when, when Bob Menzies set up the Liberal Party, he brought together all the non-Labor side of politics. And part of that was, in, you know, what used to be called the Country Party is now mm. the National Party. So where the Liberal Party had the small government belief, the National Party was very anti-socialist, very anti-communist, but not really small government type sorts of people, but passionate supporters and advocates for regional and rural Australia. Mm. That's where that sort of comes, why they're not part of the Liberal Party. They are just fierce advocates for for regional and rural Australia. You know, so, so we form a coalition to form government, yep. again, sort of as a as a non-Labor side. And, and I, 
you know, I'm a very passionate liberal and I'm a very strong believer in those philosophies and values that we talked about because I think that's what makes our country great. But I think having a coalition is actually a really good thing because it provides balance around the table. You know, the dangerous thing for a political party or anybody is if you sit in a room with people who all think exactly the same as you and you, you all think we're really, you know, the, the smartest people and we should all do the same thing, the wheels come off. But the Nats and the Libs, I think, provide balance to each other uh, mm-hmm. and the Nats provide a, you know, a pragmatic view. Now, the National Party kind of has two different paths that they take as well. You have the sort of old school Nats who are, you know, usually ex-farmers, sort of statesmen-like sort of people. And then you've got people like Barnaby Joyce, who is, you know, Barnaby Joyce is not uh, what the National Party traditionally was, not by a very long way. So that's an interesting kind of balance that, mm. that plays out on, on the Nats The side young of accountants coming through. Yeah, well, you know, it's totally interesting, right? So the Nats traditionally were the, the party of farmers. Mm. Right. And, you know, they represent farmers today, but that is not really the National Party's core constituency in a lot of places. I mean, a lot of Nats will say to you, I mean, there are, you know, there are certainly more miners. There's certainly Mm. more, you know, small business owners than there are farmers in their seats. Per Uh, head, there's a lot less people on actual farms and properties now than there were in the glory days. Yeah, exactly right. You, You know, so there's a world in which like the National Party 30 years ago, would not be a fierce advocate of the mining industry. You know, they'd be mm. a fierce, you know, they'd sort of attack the mining industry because it would represent farmers' interests. Well, you know, that's that's sort of not the National Party of today. So I think that's an interesting kind of balance for them to, to sort of work their way through. Yeah. And how does that relationship work? Like when you were in Parliament, what did it look like and how much did you have to do with each other? Uh, well, all the time, as a Queenslander, constantly, because yeah. you are, you know, there's this weird situation in Queensland. So at the state level, you have the Liberal National Party as a single party. But at the federal, when you go to Canberra, you actually sit in separate, separate party rooms. So you literally sit in a different room from each other and then you come together once a week in your party room in Canberra. But, you know, the truth is, I mean, there's a lot of interaction. I mean, the Nats are interesting for, for getting a relatively small percentage of the vote they actually have quite high representation in the parliament because that small percentage is concentrated in seats so they get lots of people elected to to the parliament so they have a um i mean they have a really strong voice how it actually works you know in a practical sense is there is a you know what we call a coalition agreement so uh, if we're in government the prime minister and the deputy prime minister who's the leader of the national party they literally sign an agreement and say this is the coalition agreement and these are the things that sit in it and that that determines uh, how many ministries the National Party will get. It determines what sort of policies that they, they find uh, important. So it is actually, um, it's quite a formalised relationship, at least at the federal level, that exists between the Nats and the Libs. Now, that looks a bit different in each state, but um, federally it's a, uh, you know, it's a broad church, it's a big tent, but I'd say it's mostly a pretty happy marriage. Yeah. Mm. How much sway do they actually have, the Nats? Like we saw last year with the whole Glasgow Climate Summit, there was a lot of carry-on from the Nats. Two weeks of meetings and debates and Canavan and Joyce piping up. And ultimately, Scotty was going anyway. Yeah. But, I, you know, I think the Nats have a lot of power. Yeah. You know, I think it would be unwise for anybody in the Liberal Party to... um to mm. to And, you know, John Howard was the best at this. I mean, John Howard would run around and, you know, when we look back nostalgically at, at John Howard as a Prime Minister, it's very easy to kind of think of him as this giant of Australian politics and, you know, whatever he wants, he got it, but he got. But he um, he would always talk about the coalition and, the, and he was very kind of respectful of that. So the Nats, I think, do have a, a you know, quite a strong voice. One function of that is if the margins in the parliament are close, you know, if it's not sort of, you know, if the Liberal Party doesn't have a a huge majority over the Labor Party, then obviously the Nats have more power, right? The Nats sort of almost become a crossbench in some sort of sense. So I think that that kind of becomes a function. But, you know, on your point around the 
the Glasgow and the um, net zero target. I mean, I wouldn't kind of say it was a case of Scott saying to the Nats, this is what I'm doing, get stuffed. I think it was a case of Scott persuading and dragging them mm. and bringing them and, you know, convincing them of things to do. And it, it, it's not sort of a – certainly the Liberal Party – you know, the wheels come off very quickly if the Liberal Party kind of tells the Nats what's going to happen. Yeah, that just yeah. doesn't work. Yeah, but in a practical sense, he could have gone to Glasgow and did go to Glasgow and he could have just said, sorry, this is what's happening. And realistically, the Nats wouldn't have been able to say, no, hang on, we're not getting behind this. This isn't happening. I, I, it could I, have I, had think, long-running ramifications. That's the but, point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, in a practical sense, sure. You know, yeah, of, okay. co- of course, Scott uh, could have done that. And I think I have no doubt in his conversations with the Nats, you know, they were reminded of that that fact in a polite and respectful way. But, you know, the political hard reality is not one in which he could have done that. You know, mm. there would have been the National Party would have done things that the National Party does to get their own way. And there would have been consequences and ramifications. Barnaby and, Joyce every day. Exactly. Piping I up. mean, you know, you know, George Christensen would have sat on the cross bench and other people yep. would have gone and... <laughs> Please explain. Popping in quickly here again, the crossbench, what Wyatt just mentioned, basically is about when they vote in Parliament, they move to one side of the room according to whether they're voting yes or no to something. So you've got people voting yes on one side and people voting no on the other. Normally members of the major parties just sit with their colleagues and vote along what's called party lines. But what Wyatt's talking about there is George getting the shits with the government and going and not sitting with the coalition and sitting on the crossbench during when things are being voted on in Parliament. Which, because the numbers are really tight in terms of Parliament, causes a political headache for the government that no amount of Panadol will get rid of. But luckily for them, they did avoid it with that whole net zero thing. Anyway, back to it. To his credit, if you think about climate change as a policy issue in Australia, Kevin Rudd, Julia Gillard, Tony Abbott, Malcolm Turnbull have basically all had their careers blown up on climate change. Um, Scott has brought a group of people, you know, into the centre on that kind of issue, mm. uh, and that's not an easy thing to do. So I, yeah. I think there is... Um, it seemed like he had a pretty significant backer this time around in the name of a certain newspaper and media proprietor. Well, I mean, that definitely does help if you, um, you know, if the media are willing to give you a fair hearing and uh, you, you can kind of do that rather than the media setting an agenda, that definitely um, has an influence in any mm. kind of democracy. You know, it was pretty remarkable that News Limited did what they did. Good. I'm glad, that, you know, they, they saw, saw, saw the light. But, uh, you know, the political winds change. And, and it's really, I mean, climate change, just on the Australian sense, is such a weird kind of thing. Because if you go to the UK, if you go to New Zealand, if you go to, you know, basically anywhere where there is a centre-right political party like the Liberal Party, a Conservative Party, they are extremely green. Uh, and it's because of this Conservative philosophy that I was talking about, like we want to ha- hand over to the next generation something that's better than we had. Farmers are like this too, right? Mm. Farmers want to protect the land, yeah, protect yeah, yeah. the water to hand it over. Yeah. That is the conservative philosophy. So if you you know, if you talk to Boris Johnson, which no one would say is a bleeding heart lefty, he is a extremely green, massive environmentalist because he is with very, very, very aggressive targets on this, leading, you know, the cop the mm. cop conversations. Because he's a conservative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In New Zealand, you know, John Key, who was the most successful cons- conservative prime minister, uh, again, very, 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 very strong on these issues because he's a conservative, yeah. not against it. And I think yeah. in this country, you know, the, the conversation we had about the threat of populism on our side, it's one where it a- has actually infected mm. uh, the political parties here, which which we don't really see globally. Yeah. It's quite interesting. A couple of decades of culture wars. We could talk yeah. about it for Lots a little while. Lots of sliding while. door moments. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, things could have been very different, uh, you know, if he went back to Kevin Rudd's time yeah. as Prime Minister. 
couple more questions for you. Now, the coalition, they have been in federal government for roughly 50-ish of the 73 years that they've existed since you talked about the formation there with Menzies and all that. Realistically, what do you think is one of the main or what do you think are the main reasons behind that huge success is it simply that australia has had for such a long time a really sizable middle class and a powerful upper class and that has kind of led to a lot of people voting for that side of politics uh well i, I you know i think that the liberal party has been really successful because most australians understand the values and philosophies that they've kind of fought for and that's that's really stood the test of time and i think uh you know, if you want a strong economy, if you want strong national security, if you want to, um, you know, if you want to make sure that your kids have better opportunity than you had in life, you would, I mean, obviously I'm the most biased person on the planet, but you would, of course, vote for the Liberal Party. Mm. And it's interesting, you know, if I think about that period of, you know, that we've just spoken about from literally the 40s to today, the period that the Labor Party was the most successful is when the Labor Party most looked like the Liberal Party. So, you know, when Bob Hawke and Paul Keating ran very successful Labor governments. They ran them not on a socialist, communist, inner-city, lefty type thing. They ran it on, we support business, we support enterprise. Financial deregulation. Financial deregulation. Uh, and, of course, the coalition in opposition in the 80s and the 90s supported Bob Hawke and Paul Keating on that. The idea that the Labor Party today would do anything like Bob Hawke or Paul Keating is completely crazy. You know, Bob Hawke today would be shot in the modern Labor Party and Adam Bant would, you know, drag him out into the street. Like, it is really bizarre. So I think that that sort of pitch to middle Australia is is obviously what works in in the Australian context, and that has been sort of you know the Liberal Party's mm. guiding light. So um, we've done it well. We've done you know we've won more than we lost. We'd like to win some more, a lot more. Well, looking at here and now, how do you think they're going to you know plan to win the election? Well, I mean it's it's basically all the same things that we we've, we've spoken about. You, you know, I think if you are uh, if you want to have a, a strong economy, if you want to have you know, a strong interest on national security. And I think, you know, thinking about the next election, this is the first time since the end of the war that, well, certainly the end of the Cold War and, and it, you know, since World War Two that the world is really changing. You know, and I think people can kind of start to feel this. The chess pieces are moving around. China's rising. Russia's sort of been uh, difficult. And, and that will create a lot of challenges over the next 20, 30 years. And I think Australians instinctively understand you know, in a changing world, you want to have people who have a track record of being strong on national security. So I think that will be part of a campaign that um, we, you know, we haven't seen a lot of yet, but I'm sure it'll be more. Mm. And then, you know, we're coming out of a global pandemic, you know, the first recession in, uh, well, in this country in, in 30 years, which is incredible. Like no other country on the planet has had more than a quarter of a century of uninterrupted economic growth. Uh, our unemployment rate is the lowest it's been in 50 years, just about. So the economy is firing on on all cylinders, despite the challenges we've had. And I think as people walk into the ballot box, if they want to keep the economy firing, if they want to uh, make sure that, you know, that they've got a secure job, secure incomes, if they want to um, maintain that prosperity, then, you know, I think they'll vote for the Liberal Party. And then, of course, the question is, you know, why would you vote for the Labor Party? And again, I'm biased, but I don't sort of I don't see that vision or commitment from the Labor Party at the moment. And I don't know. I don't understand why you would vote to put a Labor Party in that I, I can't sort of tell you what the they would offer the Australian people. So that's going to be a clear contrast, I think. So on policy, it's about pushing that stability and they're going to be looking to lead us out of this thing, et cetera, et cetera. And going yep. forward, you want 
the government to have a safe pair of hands. That's the Liberal That's Party it. pitch. That, I think that is exactly it, uh, okay. you know. And uh, when people walk in, you know, politics is full of noise, you know, particularly today, right? Politics is, you know, what's the latest issue? Who's up? Who's down? You know, what, you know there's been, you know, whatever crisis has confronted the world today. But when you vote in an election, you know, it is a really binary choice. It is, mm-hmm. you know, what do I want to happen in the next three years? You know, where do I want my country to go? And, you know, in this country, it's the Liberal Party or it's the Labor Party. You know, it's in this case, do you mm-hmm. want Scott Morrison or Anthony Albanese and, and Adam Bant to run the country? And I think um, that will be a very black and white choice for a lot of people come the campaign. There you go. Prediction? No one should make Dangerous. Predictions. No one should make <laughs> predictions. Well, look, no one should make predictions and we're a long way from the election and... You know, as someone who has won and lost elections, you, you never know. And, you know, an election could be won in the last week. But I'd make one prediction. I still think it's very, very hard for the Labor Party to win a majority. Please explain. And the majority meaning winning the majority of seats in the House of Representatives and getting enough to govern and pass legislation without having to go and negotiate with the Greens and the Independents and so on. If you might remember, Julia Gillard had a minority government and she had to deal with the likes of Bob Catter, Rob Oakeshott and Tony Windsor to pass legislation. So 76 of 151 seats in the House of Representatives is the magic number. Just over 50%. Back into it. So I would think it's that's pretty unlikely. So I think you either will have a coalition majority or you will have a Labor-Green, messy parliament-type sort of situation, which we've seen before. I think that's a real, you know, either Made of those are an exciting couple of years for regional journalists. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, I think, um, you know, the person who is, um, you know, suiting up the most in this election is actually not Anthony Albanese, it's Adam Bant. I mean, mm. I think Adam Bant will have huge sway of the Labor Party if they get sort of close, if they form government. But I, I, you know, I can't see Albo winning a massive majority. There you go. Every week seems like it's a massive week in the news and there's going to be uh, a fair few coming up. So we'll keep an eye and see what happens there. But Wyatt, thanks very much for jumping into thanks the Desert me. Rock thanks so much. studios. It's been great fun. Through it, explaining it all. Hopefully. Um, I feel like I've learned a lot. Thank Learn you. A lot thanks so much. That's it's been goal. great, guys. Thanks, Wyatt. Cheers. And that was Wyatt Roy giving us his rundown of the Liberal Party, its inner workings and how he saw it when he was down there. Yeah, that was good from Wyatt. Uh, We hope you enjoyed it. Indeed, I certainly learned a lot. Now, Clancy and Errol have a good interview lined up for Monday morning with a former New South Wales Premier and notable Labor politician, Christina Keneally. She'll have plenty to say, so make sure you tune into that one and have a listen. And we'll be back with more episodes like these over the coming weeks, including breakdowns of the major parties, polls, lobbying, all that sort of stuff. But until next time... You've been listening to Decode, the Batuta Advocates' new political series. Give us a follow if you haven't yet, and join us again next time. Until then, I'm Wendell Hussey. And I'm Effie Bateman. Bye.